Uh, birthdays, it always amazes me that birthday parties are so different for kids, right? Kids get ecstatic about their birthday. They are obsessed to want to talk about it and think about what they're going to get for it and what the party's going to be like. Uh, our family, we have four girls. Their birthdays fall over uh, just about five-month span. So we have four birthdays in five months, and then I'm supposed to get seven months off. And I'm supposed to be in my month off, right? I am in my down period. And yet, at least once a week, hey, Dad, for my birthday, I think that we should do it. I'm like, oh, please, please, this is six months away, you know? Like, do we have to talk about this? But they're so excited, and they're excited because birthdays for kids are all about like this new adventure, this new thing. Every year, they're allowed to do something that they weren't allowed to do the year before. They, uh, they're going to go to a new grade. They're going to pick up a new skill. They're going to somehow, uh, life is going to change in this exciting way. If you really want to offend a six-year-old, call them a five-year-old, right? Like that is such a slight, like I'm six because yeah, it's huge, man. Six and five, what a difference. And it's so, so important to them. Um, for us adults, it's a, um, that's interesting. I'm sorry. Uh, for us adults, it's a really different experience. Because for us, birthday parties are not as happy anymore, right? They're kind of sad. They're kind of frustrating. Um, maybe you have had this experience of, uh, particularly as you start to get to middle age. I don't know if this counts as middle age. Like the difference between 33 and 34 is so inconsequential, right? Like, nobody's like, oh, you're a big 34-year-old now. Like, it's the same as when you're 33. Life doesn't change that much. Once you get past, like, those 16, 18, 21, maybe if you really want to rent a car, you're excited about 25, right? But at some point, the birthdays just don't mean as much. And I've noticed that our kids are always, they've got plans for the next year, right? Like, this is what I'm going to do that I can do now that I couldn't do before. This is how late I can go to bed. This is the TV show mom's going to finally let me watch. Like, they have got plans for the year. And if you talk to an adult about their plan for the year, they go, I really just want to survive today. Right? Um, people will ask me, so, hey, man, what's new? I hate that question. I'm a guy in my mid 30 with four kids and a, like a busy job. Like what's new? I'm just, I'm just surviving really. You know, like there's nothing new. There's not any big plans. I'm not super excited about anything. I am literally just trying to continue to like pay my bills and put food on the table and hopefully get a little rest every once in a while. And the challenge is that for organizations, it can kind of work that way too. A new organization has this cool vitality to it. Uh, you know, I talked about just a few minutes ago in the collection about like we're in home groups and then we're doing uh, preview services and we did this and there were this and there was always something cool and exciting as a church. And now we're at a point where people are like, what's going on now as a church? And we're like, we're trying to maintain uh, momentum and add new members and continue to grow. Like it's just, it's the same old, same old. And some of this is... The effectiveness uh, is, is, is what happens when you're effective, right? Uh, this happens in adult life. Um, if you ask someone who says, what's new? And they're like, well, just year 14 of this job. 
That's because they're a successful, effective person, probably, right? You don't want to say, hey, how are things going? They're like, hey, listen, I'm on my sixth job this year, going to move into my third apartment of the year, right? Like, that is a sign that things are not going well. There should be some kind of stability. And the question I've been asking myself as we come into a third anniversary of church is, how do we continue to have a passion for the things that we care about while still dealing with the reality that an organization that's three is not that different than one that's two or one that's four, right? The likelihood that your third birthday was your favorite is very unlikely. And so what do we do as a church to continue to care about the things that we care about and not feel kind of mundane and dragged down into the ho-hums of just everyday existence? And so we're going to have a passage today um, that's going to help us talk about this, how we continue to balance uh, our passion and our desire as we go on into new things. And the reason I say that is this is a passage that for me has been a foundational drive in the way, the reason we planted this church and one of our, our, some of our core values as a church. Um, when we were first formulating the ideas for this church, I did a sermon about this passage. And when I was planning this series in Matthew, I made sure that this week of Matthew fell on this week of our anniversary service so that we could talk about this passage that was important. The first time that we really talked about it, um, oh, that's interesting. Um, anyways, there was a picture of me and Abigail and, and Fran when we were really young. Uh, from the first time we were pre preaching this. We we're getting ready to move to Rhode Island from, um, from Memphis. Abigail was a newborn, and I was preaching for a church, and we got to this passage today that is about Jesus talking about the vineyard and the tenants. It's a passage that is in the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, and Matthew gives us the sequence of fights and disagreements that are going on between himself and the religious leaders of the time. Uh, they're disagreeing, not getting along. The uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees are getting increasingly angry at Jesus about his teachings and what he's doing. And so in this passage, Jesus starts to get back at them a little bit about um, some of the things that they're doing and why he thinks they're wrong. So we start in Matthew 21. <laughs> oh, man, that's that's interesting. Uh, listen to another parable. There was a landowner. By the way, Preston makes the slides usually, if that's uh, something you didn't aware of. Um, yeah, anyway. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent the servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. All right, um, just honestly give me one second. So I am back on track. So Jesus tells this, uh, this story about this vineyard, right? And this story is supposed to have a purpose, supposed to have a meaning. The vineyard, he is clearly calling back to Isaiah 5. 
Okay, the people he's around would have known the Hebrew Bible really well, would have known these old passages. And notice how similar this passage is. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared up stones and planted it with the choices of wines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Right? Very similar language about crafting out the walls and building up the tower. As he's saying this, Jesus is undoubtedly to his listeners signaling Isaiah 5, Isaiah 5. They're hearing this story in their head from Isaiah about this vineyard that God has grown. And it's very picturesque, it's very beautiful, this idea that there's this gorgeous place and that God loves this vineyard and he cares for the vineyard. He wants to carefully craft a place that is beautiful and that is fruitful. You see very early on, both in Isaiah and in Jesus' story, that God wants the vineyard to be a place that bears fruit, that grows grapes, that creates wine, all the kinds of things that you would expect from a vineyard. And this is all a, a metaphor. He's saying that God, uh, the vineyard is God's people, and what God desires is for his people to be fruitful. He wants them to create and to share joy and peace and love and righteousness and justice and mercy all of these things that are really important in the world that the church is supposed to be a place that creates those things and shares those things and the parable is about how too often those who are in charge of god's people those who are in charge of the vineyard don't actually share them they keep those blessings to themselves Matthew 21, 35. The tenant seized the servants who the master had sent to check on the fruit, and they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. Uh, Jesus here is alluding to the prophets when he says that these different servants came to check on the fruit. The idea is that the, the vineyard is Israel, God's people, and the servants are the various messengers of God, the prophets, who throughout the Hebrew Bible came to say, hey, where's the fruit? What's going on? Why is it being shared? Why is this place so full of anger and, and nastiness and the things that shouldn't be here? Again, if you knew the story in Isaiah, it would make sense that Jesus would talk about the lack of fruit because Isaiah, one of those prophets himself, spoke about it. He looked for a crop of good grapes, but it wielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I've done for it? When I look for good grapes, why does it only yield bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. Isaiah comes to warn the people. This country, this land, this nation, these people, they will be destroyed unless they start bearing the fruit they're supposed to bear. God wants to see righteousness and he sees bloodshed. 
He wants to see justice, and he sees people being mistreated. If that's the way this thing's going to go, God's going to say fooey with it. Enough. Isaiah made that warning hundreds of years before Jesus, and here is Jesus in Jerusalem saying, you guys have never, ever listened. This is supposed to be a place that shares goodness, and all you've done is mistreat people and been bad to people. And Jesus adds this other element. He says, first the servants came, the prophets came, but finally comes the son. And he's referring to himself. Jesus is saying, I am God's own son. The owner of the vineyard sends his own child, me, to see if I can get through to you in a way the prophets could not. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This can seem, uh, this is an extreme turn. It feels uh, like a little crazy, like how do they think that was going to work? But Jesus in this metaphor is building this idea of what religion can become. See, when God's goodness and God's blessing is something for me to absorb and to hold on to and to hoard for myself, it actually turns murderous very quickly. Sometimes maybe you've heard your neighbor say, well, I want nothing to do with religion because religion just gets people killed. Religion is the reason we have so much violence in this world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as church people, we're always like, ooh, that bothers us, right? It really ticks us off. I think Jesus would agree with them to some degree. Jesus says, when you have the opportunity to know God and it becomes an end to itself, where you are worried about yourself and your absorption of God's blessing to the exclusion of other people, then yes, one thing after another will fall and eventually you will begin to hate and even desire to kill people who don't have what you have because they're a threat. They're going to steal our fruit. They're going to steal our good things. We've got to put up walls and we've got to make sure this vineyard is for us and us only. And religion can become insular and angry and violent very easily if we're not cautious. What Jesus is saying here is that we have to consider the way that we receive things. The, the key here is the difference between being a conduit for God's blessing and a receiver of God's blessing. See, the idea of the vineyard is you are in this place to pass this thing on. You are receiving this blessing so that other people can then get it passed to them. It's only passing through you. You are just a steward of it for a time. But it is meant to be shared. And when you make that fundamental shift in your head of God is blessing me so I can be a blessing to others, to God is blessing me so my life can be awesome, that's where it gets toxic. It's where it gets gross. It's where it gets, uh, it's like an ingrown toenail, right? It just festers and gets disgusting because it's all focused on self and not focused on where God wants it to go. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, the religious leaders replied. He will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time.
Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The challenge here is really clear. Share the fruit or else. Find somebody else who'll do it. Jesus' self-perception here is so fascinating. We tend, because Christianity has grown so big and so powerful in the world, we tend to think of Jesus as kind of this really powerful entity in history. But at this moment, Jesus calls himself the reject. The stone the builders rejected. This reject, this guy that nobody likes. This guy who I know you're all thinking about killing. This guy that nobody wants into town that you all wish I'd just get back on my donkey and go back out of Jerusalem. This nobody... I'm the key. And God is going to take all you religious people and scrap you and replace you with people who are going to share the love and goodness and grace and kindness and beauty and justice and mercy of God. Because if you're receiving his blessing without sharing it, he's got no time for that. And he warns them that entirely new people will now be given control of the vineyard. And that there's going to be a huge turnover and upheaval because the kingdom of God will not be squandered on people who will hoard the fruit. And it's a passage of judgment, but it's a passage of beauty. If you think that selfish religion is the way forward, you are sadly, sadly mistaken. So why is this a core for me as what we do as a feast? Why does this matter for me? Our central metaphor at the Feast Church is to be a church that has an open table to share God's goodness with new people. People that might not feel accepted or welcomed or loved somewhere else, you can feel that here. Because the reality is, we have all experienced closed-fisted religion, right? We've seen what that looks like. We have seen what it looks like when vineyards are closed up and locked up, where the tenants sit and get drunk on their own wine and don't care what happens to the rest of the world outside its doors. We've seen tenants that sit and enjoy their vistas and drink their wine, never sharing God's blessing, literally okay that the rest of the world is going to hell. That is so obsessed with themselves and their own desires that they never can look past their own doors. We've seen hearts that are so puffed up and self-righteous and looking down their noses at other people that they look at other people like dirt instead of looking at other people like people. And I love the church and I love God's people, but we have to admit that there are corners of Christendom around the world where that happens where this is a beautiful thing for me to strangle and hold on to for myself, and if nobody else gets it too bad, I'm having a good time. And that breaks my heart. At the very least, it is not sustainable. What this passage says is very clear. That's the sort of religion that God personally will destroy and crash and crumble. And he will replace it with people with generous hearts and good hearts.
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we've been perfect as a church, that the feast is this beautiful, uh, you know, pippy long stockings, wonderful place where everything always works great. And there's a lot of things for us to do and to grow on. But the heart of who we want to be is the people that instead of a clenched fist have an open table. We worked so hard and we have to continue to work hard to be a place of open conversation where if you have questions, they are welcomed and they are engaged and they are not scoffed at. We want to be a place of welcome and embrace. If you think you don't fit in church, you just haven't been here yet because you fit here and you're welcome here. We want to be a place that advocates for justice and equity where other churches turn a blind eye to the terrible things that happen in our world, we say at the very least we are aware of them and we're doing the things that we know how to make them better. We've wanted to be a place that shows hospitality in radical ways. I have seen you guys put people into your homes that you hardly knew because they needed a place to stay. Where we have offered meal after meal after meal. I mean, yesterday we served... 210 hamburgers and hot dogs or something like that, right? That's just something that we want to do and we really want to care about. We want to be the people that taste the vineyard fruit and then immediately put it back out on a table so that other people can share it with us. Because if we do it for ourselves and we hoard it for ourselves, God is not pleased and it's just not right The beautiful thing that he desires from us is to share the fruit of his vineyard because it's not just for you. It is for your children and for those who are far off. People who think they have no stake here actually have an inheritance here. And that's such at the core of who we want to be and who we're driving to be. So how do we make a third year anniversary not just be like a 34th birthday, right? Lean into this passage. Lean into the anger of God at the selfishness of hoarding his blessings and lean into the grace and the beauty of God to say it should be shared. Become a more generous person. Let's renew our passion to be a more generous and more open church. There is going to be pressure and continue to be pressure as we continue to exist as a church to become inward focused and insular. Okay, paying our own bills and taking care of our own issues and dealing with our own squabbles, those are the kinds of things churches tend to do, and this is where they start to get septic, right? And I've asked that we would just lean into this idea of new faces at the table. If you have an order of worship, uh, this is a really great photo that we took like 18 months ago. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, a lot of those people are gone. And some of them moved, have different issues that went on, but a lot of those people aren't here anymore. There's still more people in this room today than there was the day that we took that picture. And that is the kind of thing that we've got to get jazzed about, man. I sounded really corny there. I don't know. Like, well, you know, like that is the thing to get excited about is the idea of new faces and new relationships and new connections. Because our new relationships are places where God teaches us and shows us the beauty of all people. The beauty of his image in other people. Particularly if we can grow towards people who don't look like the people who are already in this room, right? Like that's just, you got to have that drive. you got to keep pushing. Because that's what takes a uh, third birthday to like, yes, all right, year four, here we go. Is that desire to see God's kingdom grow. 
that when God's reign is in your life and in other people's lives, when the things that he desires, the hope and faith and goodness and grace and glory, when those things are experienced in our neighborhood, it just spills out, right? Um, you know, like, I, I thought this was a fun image. Um, just champagne overflowing from one glass to another, right? Have you ever seen this at, like, a fancy party, probably on TV because you're not cool enough to actually go to a party like that? But just this idea that God is pouring out all these good things, and it comes to you and then goes to the next people and goes to the next people. We want to see that for a neighborhood. We want to see that for a city. We want to see providence just filled with more kindness and love and grace, not because we are good, but because we're just simply passing on that wonderful thing that God offered to us. And that is the vision that we started with of a feast for people to join. And it's the vision we've got to keep leaning into if we're going to see God continue to do awesome things. All right. Uh, one of the things we do is a Q&A. I have no idea how long I've talked now. So uh, what uh, questions might you guys have about our sermon today? Anything about today's passage or application? Anything you want to know more about? Yeah, so I think the idea of new ideas, I mean... Yes, I love experimentation, and I love going to new places. I have two or three ideas in my brain of things that I would like us to do that we've never done before, you know? Uh, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's really good. Uh, I think we have a good core DNA, because um, we'll ask ourselves important questions, like, is that something that focuses on us or focuses on new folks, right? And that's, that's a um, sort of a heuristic that can can weed out bad new ideas and keep good new ideas, but also allow for new ideas, right? To say, hey, is this outward focused or inward focused? Yeah. Any other questions about the passage or application today? Yeah, so this passage does have shades of apology for how God's people went from a Jewish-oriented, Jewish-led group to a largely Gentile-oriented, Gentile-led group in about 100 years, right? There is a piece of that that's there. Um, I think that, you know, particularly in Romans, we see some good examples of how it's, it's not really rejecting the one and putting back the other. Um, because P Paul will point out, like, Jesus was a Jewish guy, and I'm a Jewish guy, and Peter and James and John, like, all of these leaders are Jewish people. So Christianity is a Jewish movement in the first century. So it's not about sort of supplanting the old. The way Paul talks about it is a tree. He says there's this tree that was God's people. And when Jesus came along, the people that rejected Jesus are like are branches that are, are sort of pruned. And then God has grafted in new branches being Gentile believers, right? And so, but yeah, so you're seeing a very important tension there. The Gentile Jew tension of the first century, particularly within the church, is in this passage, and this is an apologetic for why some of these Pharisees who did not believe in Jesus and wanted to kill Jesus are not thought of as doing God's will by the New Testament church. Does that make sense? Right. So, I, so here's, here's what I would say about, so you're asking generally a question about holiness, right? So how do you continue to be radically open but also uphold the importance of holiness in your body? Um, meaning like good moral living. Um, I, for me, one of the ways to do this is a shift in tone. Uh, we've historically said you need to not sin and do bad stuff because we're in charge and we make the rules and you've got to follow our rules. We didn't mean to say it that way, but that's the way it's come off. Uh, the, the value of health here, I think, is really 
is really important. Um, using almost medical language, like you shouldn't smoke not because we don't like smoking as a society or because it's annoying or because it's unpopular. It's because it's going to destroy your lungs. Okay, and so we encourage you not to do it because we love you too much to let you still be destroying your lungs. And so when we talk about sin, about bad behavior, you know, like the way you engage in romantic relationships is destroying you. And we want to encourage you not to do that, not so that we can be in charge of your personal life, but because we want to see you not continue to, to create harm in yourself and other people. Um, and so to me, that's a small shift, but an important shift that we talk about sin, about it as, a, as, as healthy or not healthy, right? Sin are the things that destroy God's work in our life because God didn't create our bodies to operate well with that stuff in it. And it's not just about arbitrary rules. It's about health and holistic goodness. And to me, that's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way that you can help keep the gate open. Uh, the other thing, though, is patience, right? Like, we have this weird thing where if you've been a Christian for 30 years and you're still a gossip, we'll be patient with that all day long. But if you're an alcoholic and you've been to church for two weeks, we're like, well, why isn't it gone yet? You know, like uh, finding appropriate patience um, is important and realizing that, you know, I know the things that I'm still bad at after 30 years of trying to be better at it. And so, you know, if somebody else has got something that they've been going with for decades, I'm in that spot too. Any other questions? Yeah. I mean, you want to speak the truth in love, right? And often we speak the truth or we say things that are loving, but we don't do both. <laughs> so yeah. Um, I, I think there are places and to me, this is relationship wise, right? Like I can sit and like hurl bombs at TV preacher on Facebook. That's great. TV preacher doesn't know me, you know, and like that's just me making myself feel righteous. Um, but like, you know, if you've got a sibling or a cousin who's doing really gross things and claiming to be a Christian, your ability to go, yo, knock it off. This is bad. You know, like, yeah, I think there's there's a place for that. Um Obviously, Jesus is not making religious people happy here, and he's upsetting them by his, his comments. Yeah, Judy, do you have a question? And it's super helpful in that context. Paul says that, and then he immediately says, but I'm not talking about people who aren't following Jesus. Because if you don't hang out with immoral people who don't follow Jesus, you're not going to have any friends. And so it's this really interesting dichotomy in that passage. He goes, if you've got somebody who's a follower of Jesus, and they're living terribly, get distance. If you have someone who doesn't follow Jesus and they're living terribly, be their friend because you shouldn't expect them to be behaving the way that you would behave because they don't have the same ethical system you do. And it's a fascinating dichotomy in that place um, that he has. All right. We've had a very awesome long uh, service today. We've got one more song to sing and then we will be done for our day. So come on back up our worship folks.